Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll talk about a horror novel that feels just a little bit closer to home than you might hope it would. In The Marigold, author Andrew F. Sullivan writes about a gleaming condo tower, a stack of scuffed rental suites and undelivered amenities that crumbles around its residence as a mysterious sludge spreads slowly through it. I don't think you'll ever look at mold the same way again. That's a little bit later on. First, let's meet novelist, editor, and creative writing instructor Amy Jones. She's the author of the novels Every Little Piece of Me and We're All in This Together. Her third novel, Pebble and Dove, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Set in Florida, Pebble and Dove is the story of mothers and daughters and an inspirational manatee. Mother Lauren's life is a mess. She has a storage unit full of candles she can't sell, a growing mountain of debt, and a teenage daughter, Dove, who barely speaks to her. When Dove discovers the abandoned Flamingo Key Aquarium and Tackle, she meets Pebble, the world's oldest manatee in captivity. It's Pebble, a former star attraction, and her devoted caretaker, Ray, who hold the key to helping Lauren and Dove move forward. Amy Jones joined me via Zoom. I have to ask you about your second novel, and okay. I'll tell you why in a sec. So it's called Every Little Piece of Me, and it's the story of a person named Ava Hart. She is a reluctant cast member of a reality TV show based on her big city family's uh, efforts to run a B&B in small town Nova Scotia. That's why I ask you about this, because I'm from small town Nova Scotia. No and kidding. <laughs> I have a feeling that uh, this was sort of based on Lunenburg, which is where I was born. Yes, actually, that's correct. <laughs> um, I am also from, well, I grew up in Halifax. My parents now live in St. Margaret's Bay. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Lunenburg growing up and um, in subsequent years. And I really like, I, I didn't feel like I was finished writing about Nova Scotia. And, uh, you know, I really, I, I really like the juxtaposition of like having, you know, cause I mean, it happens so often in Nova Scotia, you know, people from the big city come and they don't really know what to expect when they get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I thought I would take that to the extreme and make it, you know, someone famous from New York coming to, uh, a, a you know, a very small, but probably, you know, one of the most beautiful towns in the world, mm -hmm. um, but like unable to appreciate it because of the situation that they're in. I always loved when I lived down there reading in Harper's Magazine that the coolest kids in the world were from Lunenburg because they were so isolated. This is pre-internet and everything else. They were so isolated that they had to make their own things. They had to make their own little subculture up. They weren't influenced by anybody else. And I loved that. Yeah, I actually remember that article and I remember us like joking about it, saying that, you know, that the cool, all the cool kids in Lunenburg were like hanging out at the quick stop. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the Every Little Piece of Me talks about the downsides of uh, living in the public eye. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about that. I've read that you're like obsessed with reality shows. You love reality <laughs> shows. And if you want to talk about the downside of living in the public eye, I think it's be a reality star and see how that works out for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I one of the things I was really fascinated with was the idea that, um, like, I remember watching, um, you know, uh, meet, is it Meet the Osbournes, the Ozzy Osbourne mm -hmm. show? Yeah. And, you know, I'd watched like so many episodes of it until I discovered that there was, they actually had another daughter who wasn't on the show. <laughs> That's right. 
and who right. had like you know totally opted out of that and I I was just like you know I started that's so that's how I started thinking about it I was like how you know what 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 must that be like to have like these two very different trajectories for the kids in that family where you know two of them really grew up sort of everybody watching them and then one mm-hmm. of them sort of on the sidelines and how different their lives would be um so you know i had this idea of this like reluctant reality star who in the beginning she sort of she really wants to be um like off camera she doesn't want to be involved um you know she tries to sabotage things as much as she can um <laughs> but then when her little sister starts to become really famous um she starts to sort of regret her decisions um and so you know it's it's about that sort of complicated relationship that i think we all have with you know with being seen with being known you know so many of us are on social media and like you know we often hope that like something we post will go viral but then when it does it's actually really not necessarily a great feeling um, or it doesn't always play out the way that we hope it is. So I think we all have that sort of complicated relationship with, um, with fame, with, you know, sort of being perceived and being known. Um, And so, you know, I sort of decided to take that to the, to the extremes with the reality TV. And we've been talking about uh, your second novel. We'll talk about uh, Pebble and Dove in just a second, Uh, but you call short stories, your first love. And I love a short story because I love the uh, economy of language that is necessary in it. I love that the uh, ideas in it have to be very carefully honed. And I think, and you may disagree, it's way harder to write a great short story than it is to write a, a novel. Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's um, and I love that you use the the phrase economy of language because I use that often when you know I I still I haven't written short stories in a while, but I still um, you know I teach and mentor a lot of students who are studying short stories, and you know it always reminds me how much I how much more short stories actually sometimes have in common with poetry than they do with mm. a novel. You're listening to Amy Jones on the Richard Krauss Show. Her new novel, Pebble and Dove, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Because a novel, you know, you're working with this like huge expanse of of prose and it's almost more like, you know, you have this huge narrative that you're trying to put the puzzle pieces together to sort of make a, um, you know, the story all fit together. So I see it as like, you know, obviously there's a lot of writing and craft and language involved, but it's, it is also kind of all like a logic puzzle in, in some ways, you know, trying to figure out how to make all of these different threads come together and make sense and everything get resolved and, you know, making sure you're taking the reader on the right journey and all that stuff. Whereas with a short story, I feel like you can almost play around a little bit more. Um, you know, you're not, you're not as worried about like putting those pieces together because, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just sort of like this snapshot of a moment usually, um, not always, but, you know, often it's, it is sort of like the slice uh, you know, the little slice of cake rather than the whole thing, yeah. um, you know, and which is, you know, I like, I always use um, like food and cooking like yeah. analogies when I'm talking about writing. It's my other true love. Um, and, you know, I often think of it as like, you know, uh, a short story is like a, a a truffle or something very like, or fudge or like something very right. condensed and, and intense. So you, right. you just take the one bite and you can experience all of the things that you might experience in a longer piece of writing, but in a very condensed amount of space. You say that most of the time since you started writing, it was because you wanted to imagine different lives than the lives that you've lived. Um, If you uh, grew up in a small city, maybe you were dreaming of the world outside of that. I certainly did growing up (laughs) in the tiny little town of Liverpool, (laughs) born in in Lunenburg, grew up in Liverpool, (laughs) which had about a thousand people in it, I think, at the time (laughs) when I grew up down there. 
Um, so tell me a little bit about some examples of that in your previous books. And then is that something that you're exploring in Pebble and Dove as well, the new book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it did start out when I was younger. Um, you know, I thought my life was really boring. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I had a, and in retrospect, it really wasn't like, there was a lot of, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on in my life when I was young as well, but, you know, I, I did, you know, grow, grew up in a, in a small town or felt, it felt like a small town at the time. Now I look back, I'm like, Halifax, not a small town. Um, but it did feel quite small, you know, compared to the glamorous lives that I was watching on, you know, my mom's soap operas and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I used to imagine, um, you know, a life outside of that and a, and a bigger life. And that's how I started writing was because, you know, in my writing, it could take me anywhere. Um, and as I got older, I started to sort of explore more um, different paths, I guess, that, you know, I I could take as, as a person. And, and uh, you know, instead of just like imagining a better life for myself, imagining what would happen if I had done this instead of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think over the years, it's sort of evolved a little bit more that like, you know, I've, I've start I stopped imagining what it would be like for myself and started imagining what life is like for other people. So it sort of brought in my empathy for, you know, being able to see the world through other people's perspectives. Um, you know, so I spend a lot of time now, you know, at the grocery store, watching people and thinking what their <laughs> lives might be like, um, or, you know, imagining, you know, a person in a certain scenario and like the choices that they might make and the different paths that that might take them on. And because as a writer, that's really what we do, right? Especially um, those of us who write um, narrative mm-hmm. fiction and longer narrative fiction is that, you know, we have these characters and, you know, we imagine them in our head as these like fully formed people. <laughs> and then we have to continually make decisions for them along the way. And each decision that we make for them, like in our own lives, sort of takes them off in a different direction. Um, so for myself, when I start writing, I never really know where the story's going to go. And and this is sort of, you know, I always feel like a little, uh, you know, it's a little woo woo for me to talk about like <laughs> the idea of characters leading me. Um, but that is that is really how how it it tends to play out is that, you know, I sort of let them do what they want to do once I get to know them. Um, and, you know, there is there are a lot of elements that have been um, taken from my own life. I mean, Pebble and Dove, as you mentioned, uh, my newest novel that's coming out at the end of the month, it's, it's set in Florida, which is a place that I spent a lot of time um, growing up because my grandparents and then now my parents were both snowbirds. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I, when I'm there, I often imagine um, what people's lives are like living there. Cause it feels so, so different from, from the life I live here, you know, in, in, in Hamilton, Ontario. Mm. Well, it's funny. You say that it sounds a little woo woo to have <laughs> your characters kind of tell you what they're going to do. I cannot tell you how many authors have told me that though. And <laughs> I've, I've said this a lot of times on this show, but Douglas Copeland said when he's writing, he told me that uh, it's like this character stand on his shoulders and just whisper into his ears what they want to do. And he follows their advice. I am so glad to hear that. That makes me feel so much better. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everyone yeah. does it. You're not alone in that. <laughs> the pebble of the title of Pebble and Dove uh, is the world's oldest manatee in captivity. Uh, so uh, that manatee becomes a source of inspiration for the human characters. Uh, and you said that you've always been fascinated by manatees. Why? I know. Did I know? This is how long I haven't lived in Nova Scotia. Did we have them? Did we see them in Nova Scotia? No, no, no we didn't. Right? Yeah. No. They're very, um, they're very particular to uh, like Florida and. Mm. Um, Georgia and North Carolina, especially the West Indian manatee. There's different species of manatees, but they're all warm 
water creatures. Right. So they mostly spend, they spend their, their winters in Florida and sometimes they will migrate a little bit up the seaboard to uh, the Eastern seaboard to Georgia, um, North Carolina, that kind of thing. But you mostly find them in Florida, um, which is why, you know, that they sort of, you know, writing a book about a manatee sort of had to be set in Florida. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the fascination I think began you know, from spending so much time there. And one of our favorite things to do uh, is to go kayaking. And often when you're kayaking in the in the intercoastal waterway on the Gulf side, you'll see them um, sort of just floating beneath the surface. And the first time you do, it's actually quite overwhelming because they're huge, like they're <laughs> enormous. And, you know, your first instinct as a human, you see this giant sea creature is to, you know, is fear because, you know, we're trained to like, think like sharks and, right, <laughs> you know, right, dangerous right. sea creatures. But manatees are so gentle and curious and you know they don't um like they're vegetarians they only eat seagrass which you know is is great but also you know causing them a lot of problems right now <laughs> as the as the seagrass beds deplete but mm -hmm. uh you know they they also are you know sort of um also don't have any predators either except for mankind basically um so you know the 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 that mix of sort of you know this vulnerability that they have that where like you know they they're just out there floating around they love um people they love coming over and like checking out your kayak while you're out there kayaking um uh, but at the same time they're like super resilient like when you see them out in the waterway that you often see manatees with big white marks on them because they've been hit by propellers from boats and it's very rare that you see one that hasn't because they are so curious and they'll come up to your boat and you know get hit by the by the propeller if you're not careful so you know i think i think people are now beginning to realize a lot more because they are um an endangered species that you know they have to be really careful um and protect them but you know for a long time that wasn't the case um so you know i just i i find it all i find them just like a, this really interesting mix of like resiliency and and vulnerability and uh and i just sort of fell in love with them <laughs> <laughs> and and they the characters in your book kind of fall in love with them as well so that's the, the this idea of resiliency which is very much a theme in this book mm -hmm. uh i guess came directly from the manatee yeah yeah exactly and i also you know i think i think about the idea that you know this manatee in captivity has lived for much longer than any manatees mm -hmm. have ever lived in li lived in the wild and you know i so um, one of the things that, you know, are sort of playing with the idea of, you know, the way that humans love animals so, so much. And, and yet, you know, that idea that like, we want to keep them behind glass so we can look at them right. and see them and play with them whenever we want. Um, and I think that there's this, uh, you know, there's a shift in the way that we think about these sort of things happening. I think, you know, um, you know, the way that we look at animals in captivity and how best to care for them, um, you know, and how to actually have their best interests at heart. But I think, you know, for for Pebble in the book, who is is uh, has been almost a century in captivity, uh, you know, there's there's no way that she can be returned to the wild at this point mm -hmm. because she doesn't have the the skills or the capacity to actually live as a wild manatee. So, you know, there's a there's a sort of uh I think this metaphor of that in the relationships in the book as well, where, you know, this idea of like how deeply we can love somebody, but also uh need to let them be free and let them let them go and and uh let them live their own lives as well. You're listening to Amy Jones on the Richard Krauss show. Her new novel, Pebble and Dove, is available now wherever you buy fine books. All of your books explore female friendship, 
They explore female relationships. And you have said that not a lot of books uh, explore the kind of, I don't know, messy, exciting things that go on in those kind of relationships. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I think for a long time, uh, you know, I mean, there there definitely are books out there that explore the messy side of female relationships. I think um, one of the things that I was probably talking about at the time was this idea that, you know, um, that whenever whenever people are asking me about my books or my characters, they always like want me to pre- be presenting like a strong female character. And, you know, I sort of always push back against that idea a little bit because I'm like, I want to present women who aren't just necessarily, you know, strong, um, which is definitely like a part of who they are. But also, you know, most of us are, you know, a lot of things and we're not always strong. And sometimes we make really bad mistakes. And sometimes we, uh, you know, we're just like frustrated and mean for no reason. And, you know, we're not necessarily likable. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, um, that I've seen a lot of pushback against as well from other writers in, in, in years, in the past few years is that, um, you know, these relationships that women have with each other can be complicated and beautiful and messy. Um, they don't necessarily have to be either, you know, best friends or mortal enemies. It's not always that black and white. (laughs) It's not all sex in the city. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about imagining the Flamingo Key Aquarium in Tackle, which, uh, is the kind of place that would probably only exist in Florida, maybe, maybe (laughs) California too. Uh, but it's, it's a, a, an aquarium in a ship. Uh, I remember seeing in in Las Vegas, uh, seeing like a mermaid show, you know, that kind of thing, like the, these really weird things that only seem to exist in these very specific places. So uh, it's the backdrop for much of what happens here. So tell me about the Flamingo Key Aquarium and Tackle and your your uh, idea behind that. Um, it originally stemmed from actually a real place in Miami. Um, it's it's hasn't been around in a long time, but there was the uh, my, Miami aquarium and tackle, I think they called it. Um, and it was actually, um, built inside a ship that was, uh, you know, sort of ensconced in a, in a steel bulkhead, the same way that, uh, the Flamingo Key one is, um, but just on the other side of, of Florida on the Atlantic side. And I think it has a very similar history. I, I took some, uh, some pieces of the history, um, to sort of weave together the history of, of this place as well. But, you know, the ship started out as a, uh, a warship and then um, was turned into a floating hotel and then uh, eventually uh, it became an aquarium and uh, I just thought like I just love the idea of having like the ocean inside of a ship um, and putting all these you know <laughs> this thing that like traverses the ocean and then all of a sudden yep. all these things that live in the ocean are in it and you know I I really love um you know, I'm I'm a really big fan of like those kitschy roadside attractions, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, Florida's full of them, especially you know when you get sort of outside of the major metropolis, metropolises, and uh, you know, I I really love the that whole like kitschy roadside attraction feel, which is what I wanted to bring to this place, um, and I really wanted to give it sort of that sense of this really rich old Florida history um, that I feel like is, you know, is getting lost in some of, in some Mm -hmm. places and some of the more touristy places. That was Amy Jones on the Richard Krause show. Her book, Pebble and Dove is available now wherever you buy fine books. In this segment, we're going to meet an author, the Globe and Mail called one of the country's most talented young writers. 
Andrew F. Sullivan is the author of The Marigold, a new novel that combines body horror, urban dystopia, and eco-fiction in a story about a dystopian future in the city of Toronto where a monster of our own making, a deadly mold, becomes sentient and attacks from within. Publishers Weekly called it an impressively bleak vision of the near future as grotesquely amusing as it is grim, and David Demchuk, author of Red X and the Bone Mother, said it is a gripping tour de force torn from tomorrow's headlines. Andrew F. Sullivan joined me via Zoom to talk about The Marigold. Congratulations on the book. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's uh, been kind of crazy to see a weird horror book take off like this, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the footsteps of people like David Cronenberg uh, or J.G. Ballard, perhaps, you know, those fans will reach out and find that. But perhaps it's it's gone beyond that for you. I mean, I think those are the really the two touchstones that make it make sense. I think Cronenberg mm-hmm. has that history with Toronto and it has that sort of, you know, despite being strange and gross and weird, that popular appeal where people resonate yeah. with his work, which I've always found amazing. Um, and then, yeah, Ballard sort of as that like structure to build yourself around. I think those are both big influences on me, but the contemporary setting and the fact that, you know, we live in the Toronto we do right now kind mm-hmm. of makes it a bit more accessible, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you can't turn on the radio or pick up a newspaper without hearing about some new aspect of how Toronto is falling apart <laughs> in some way. And I'm assuming that this book uh, didn't get written in the last six months i mean these take a long time to come out so uh is this something you've identified for a while is this the way you've been feeling about the city yeah i think there's been a lot of people i mean there's a epigraph that kicks off the book which is a quote from rob ford saying everything's fine and i think you know i think it's been there for a while i think maybe especially in the last few months people notice because it starts to affect their lives Mm -hmm. it starts to sort of bubble up out of other places but I mean, even on the basis level, you know, the sort of creature of this book is called the wet. And anyone who's had a basement apartment in Toronto uh, is very familiar with that. I would say actually the GTA even, you know, we are around a lake. We are sort of keep filling in that lake to build on it. Um, so I think there's definitely it's, it's it was there for me. It was sort of surreal. You know, you write a book that's like near future mm-hmm. and then it's maybe closer than you imagined. Uh, so yeah, you're right. I, I probably handed it into my editor two years ago and we started working there and to just see what's kind of happened since. Uh, it's only a little scary. Yeah, it's weird. It must be when the the speculative fiction catches up to what's really happening and uh, and collides and just in time for your book to come out that details the whole thing, which is kind of cool actually. Yeah, it's been kind of, you know, I think with this book to the idea, I think the day it came out, there was a sinkhole opening up at like King Street somewhere. And I was like, no way, this can't be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's also really structured around um, how much Toronto changes and how quickly it changes and how sometimes quickly it is to give up the past. And that's why I'm happy to kind of still resonate with, you know, the older horror of Toronto the legacy of it a bit and kind of call back to like those Cronenberg films or to the work of somebody like David Demchuk, where they're really, you know, they're dealing with the city as it was and as it is now, and not just trying to uh, pave over what came before. 
Now, you say this isn't a pandemic book, and it's not a plague book, but uh, or a response to COVID, but it was definitely influenced by all of that. How so? Yeah, I, I would say about 70% of it was written before the pandemic hit. Um, and I actually put it on the shelf. I was like, oh, you know, like the whole world could change and everything could kind of blow up around me. And, right. you know, who am I to... And after two or three months, I was like, oh, no, it's going how I expected. Okay, I'm going to go back to the book where, you know, there is sort of like, you know, how much we're giving over to corporate interests. You know, we saw it with Dougie just sort of being like, oh, all right, uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, you want in on this? Um, you know, sort of a surrender of like civic spaces and public spaces to, you know, private interests and things like that. You're listening to author Andrew F. Sullivan on The Richard Krauss Show. His novel, The Marigold, is available wherever you buy fine books. But it was surreal, yeah. Like I had my public health investigators in my book wearing heavy-duty masks before any of this was happening. And those kind of resonances were there. Uh, and I do think, you know, there are going to be future... You know, it is something that's going to recur, whether it's, you know, COVID or other illnesses or things like fungus, whatever else. We are living in a world that's really changing and is always sort of, you know, working on its own stuff that we don't quite understand. We're not in charge. I think that's a big part of the book is um, an expectation sometimes for humans that, you know, we call all the shots. And COVID made that very clear that we do not. Uh one of the ways that you research this book, uh, which is about a, a condo tower uh, that's kind of uh, falling apart, and another one, the Marigold Two, which is uh, in in the process of being built, and the and the the owner is having some trouble, <laughs> was to research how the original Trump International Hotel and Tower uh, was financed. So, tell me a little bit about that. What was it that that sparked something in you about that? Uh, I mean, I worked at one point I worked downtown like Bay and Richmond mm. uh, at an engineering firm. I was like, the so one right guy there. there. Yeah. For people that aren't from Toronto, that's you, you, you would have been under the shadow of the Trump sign. Exactly. And I was there when like a huge chunk of glass fell off. And, you know, yeah. so like that made it very real. I was also, you know, one of the few people down there not wearing a suit during the day, which also kind of made me feel like an imposter a bit. But I think there was like a probably all the way back to even. 2015, 2012, there was articles, you know, in the star and other places about how nuts it was that this thing was even getting built, how many rounds of financing it went through, how many times it almost fell through. But with these huge projects, sometimes it's like if you're already 65% through, you've already got the tower up, you know, you have to finish it somehow. And so just seeing the ways, you know, that they, that, you know, Financing will get brought into these projects, people who maybe don't understand what they're getting into, people who have just enough money to invest, but not enough money to sue <laughs> if things go wrong. I think, you know, like things can get predatory that way. Yeah. I mean, it's in the past now. This building has moved on. It's changed its name. It's a whole different thing. But it was weird to have, you know, we had this tremor of Trump sort of underlying the city and kind of cracking open a lot of, you know, what goes wrong uh, when it comes to, you know, investing in real estate. So the Trump Tower in Toronto, the now defunct Trump, Trump Tower uh, and mildew were inspirations. So tell me a little bit about using mildew as yeah, an inspiration yeah. for a book of horror. 
Well, I think it's something that's like a quickly resonant. Everyone gets it. It's almost yeah. like, you know, it has as much identity as a vampire might. You know, it is the very <laughs> real thing. I think it felt very true to me. I think it is, you know, as anyone who has a home or has lived somewhere, it does give you that tremor. Once you get that smell, you're like, no, it can't be. Uh, I think there was a real element there. And then just doing, yeah, research into, you know, funguses, into mold, into, you know, where they come from, how different they are from us and vegetables, you know, the fact that, you know, a fungus is sort of a third type of life. And so there is something eerie and kind of cosmic and weird about that where it doesn't fit into all our categories neatly. And like humans, it can change based on its circumstances. Mm. It's not just waiting to evolve. It's waiting for the conditions to change and it will change with them. And so that was really striking to me. Also the fact, you know, that it can kind of go dormant and come back. And just the, there's like a deep fear there. I think that anyone, you know, who's experienced black mold in their living situation it is almost sort of like an animal instinct that like something is wrong. Just the words black mold. You say that to people and they go run screaming in the opposite direction. This book, you mentioned uh, the word eerie. Uh, you mentioned the word uncanny because it is a, a horror book. I think it's being uh, sold as a horror book. But I don't know that it has actual terror in it so much as it does a sense of real kind of unease, which is probably worse than just having that dopamine hit of that 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 big scare that you get this brings you along and slowly uh amps up this just feeling that something's not right and that to me is more terrifying than just one big element of of fear yeah i think a lot of my favorite sort of horror writers exploit that like i think dread is one of the best tools you have as mm -hmm. a horror writer i i do think it's a different speed um rather than you know i'm a fan of you know your slashers i'm a fan of you know the more extreme ends of horror but for mm -hmm. me what i like to write is definitely something that's building that sensation and sort of dragging you along with it what's cool about a book or what makes a horror novel different from like a movie is the reader is you know participating you, you know, in, when right. you're in a movie, you're kind of sitting there and stuff's right. just happening to you. When you're in a book, you're really kind of, you gotta, if you want to keep going, it's on you, man. And mm -hmm. so ratcheting up that tension throughout is definitely, you know, what I'm shooting for and also kind of what I see horror for me that works and kind of also the, the get the metaphor to work with the uh, monster, right? Well, Black mm -hmm. Mold doesn't come out in the middle of the night and scare <laughs> <you> go, boom, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You mentioned J.G. Ballard earlier. Uh, you mentioned David Cronenberg, uh, who, well, he's a novelist. He's written one book uh, called, called Consumed. But uh, what other novelists have influenced your style, would you say? Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot to draw from. I would say, uh, I would say like Flannery O'Connor and Harry Cruz are two big ones. I think there's something about sort of the Southern Gothic, Southern grotesque that kind of translates really well to southern ontario um there's you know there's this idea of almost uh you know places that believe they're very important but maybe are not as relevant as they once were uh you know the idea of like histories that are kind of liminal or bury terrible secrets beneath them and who present their characters often you know as 
not good people, but people who are complicated and are sort of wrapped up in their own lives. And then I think even like, you know, it's a very easy one to say, but like somebody who is a great horror writer, who's often seen as a great literary writer, um, Toni Morrison, you look at something like Beloved, where it like that's a ghost story. It's horrifying, it's brutal, it's terrifying, but it resonates. And even something like The Bluest Eye as well, where you're getting these snapshots of a character's life. Uh, she has a moment in one book where, I never forget it, this character bites into candy at the movies and cracks a tooth. And from that moment on, her life is never the same. And, you know, when you're able to pinpoint, you know, a life change on something so minor and yet in a novel make it so pivotal, uh, you know, that's real horror for me. The realization that you'll never be the same again. You're listening to author Andrew F. Sullivan on The Richard Krauss Show. His novel, The Marigold, is available wherever you buy fine books. Well, there's also something interesting about horror. And we talked about the difference between watching horror in a film uh which is kind of passive in a way and then the the more interactive way of reading when you have to turn the page and you make the decisions all the way along and i think it's both are are bonded though um by the same idea that if you're in a movie theater or if you're at home reading a book you are able to give yourself a feeling that perhaps you don't have in your regular life but uh, it still gives you that that little shot of dopamine that you want, but uh, you feel safe. So we like to be scared when we feel safe. And I think that's probably kind of the success of horror, because otherwise, why would you want to see these terrible things? But I, I, I do think that that it's that that mix of of excitement and safety that draws us towards it. Totally. I, I I see it as very much, yeah, like you're almost pursuing that sort of catharsis, right? You're trying mm -hmm. to hit that moment where, you know, you feel something and it takes you to kind of your limit emotionally <laughs> and then it recedes and you go back to your life and you've experienced maybe a heightened emotion mm -hmm. or a heightened affect and you're able to go about your day and, you know, sort of, you know, not quite the same as a roller coaster, but unleashing sort of the the response that maybe you you want but you also want to walk away from afterwards and so that kind of gives you that release now you say that this book you handed it in two years ago it's all done it's come out it's successful are you working on something else right now yeah uh my friend and i nick cutter who's a much more famous horror writer than myself uh we have a book coming out in august that we co-wrote called oh. the handyman method and it's about a haunted DIY home improvement YouTube channel <laughs> that wow. uh, slowly begins to undermine uh, a man's sense of himself and his family. And it's sort of been referred to as algorithmic possession. And uh, we're really excited about it, sort of like a Amityville horror meets Black Mirror kind of thing. It's a bit faster than Marigold. It's a bit yeah. more of a page turner in that way. It's a more traditional horror novel. Uh, but we're really excited about it with the ideas we're kind of juggling. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a crazy year to have these two books. But yeah. I think they're also both speaking to the same kind of concerns about something kind of poisoning the place you live. And, and how do you co-write? You, you're not in the same room, I guess, right? Are you, are you sending pages back and forth electronically? Sometimes we would be in the same room just to really hash out what the hell are we doing here? Uh, but I think... Um, 
what it is, is it comes down to, yeah, you know, I write 500 words, then he writes 500. And then as we get more comfortable, we start writing for longer stretches. Mm. Um, but a lot of it came down to being friends for a long time, knowing each other really well. I think we'd been friends for eight or nine years before right. we started this. And the big thing was just, you know, having a similar work ethic. Like if a guy says he's going to get you a thousand words tomorrow <laughs> and he doesn't, right. what are you going to do? So that mutual respect and that mutual work ethic, that's the only way you get it done. And not arguing about where semicolons go. <laughs> I mean, no, because there'll be an editor later who's like, that's right. you're both wrong. So you do have to, yeah, you got to put the ego on a high shelf. Uh, that's maybe a little hard to reach and kind of, you know, get ready to uh, expose, you know, your weaknesses a little bit and have someone else shore them up. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. Pleasure to speak to you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Richard. This was great. Yeah, that was Andrew F. Sullivan on The Richard Krause Show talking about his dystopian new novel, The Marigold. It's available now wherever you buy fine books. And Publishers Weekly called it an impressively bleak vision of the near future, as grotesquely amusing as it is grim. Check it out. Big thanks to Andrew for coming by. Also, a big thanks to Amy Jones for stopping by to talk about her new best-selling novel, Pebble and Dove, which is available now wherever fine books are sold. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. Mm -hmm.